0: This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David Michalis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball.
1: Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Frank Lucchese, manager of the Chicago Cubs, card number 564. Okay, another manager card. This is very exciting
0: remember that we had a ripkin family episode that included a manager and also had tommy lasorda this one though david doesn't have a golf cart in it so already already very different but we did have some follow-up from
1: previous episodes we need to clear out man i was listening to the two strike noise podcast they had some some kind words to say about our program here they also created a kaiju ed hearn image with Ed Hearn from his 88 Tops card terrorizing the city of New York, stomping on buildings. And if folks enjoy our show, they will also enjoy the program, a baseball history podcast. They get into some stories, some individual players, but they also play a game where they open a pack of wax pack cards. Each host opens a pack and they play a game where whoever has the most war wins. Mm. So it's a fun game and the kind of a remembering some guys, exercise. It's a great podcast. Give them a listen. We also had some follow-up about Alvin Davis. Listener Jeremy H. told me that he had met Alvin Davis and that he had spent some time with Alvin at Alvin's church. And he said, Alvin's a great guy. Well, then a couple days later, he gets back to me and he sends me a message. He had recommended Alvin listen to the podcast and he did. And Alvin said... A very cool and very accurate podcast. I even learned a couple things. Yes! You know, I take that as the greatest compliment. All
0: indications were that Alvin was a great guy, but if he's listened to the pod, then it must be even greater. So thanks for that. And and so to all of you listening, if you happen to know the players we're talking about, forward the episode to them. We'd love to get feedback. And of course, any corrections if in, in case we got anything wrong.
1: Matt, um, we also have some very
0: sad follow-up. This is a really tough news to share with the community. But Sakana, the official mascot of the 1988 Tops podcast, unfortunately has retired. The mascot, the mystery fish of the Chibolote Marines, let it drop on Twitter that there would be a retirement ceremony, that the fish head was going to take on its final form of evolution and leave the Japanese baseball league. For good, so we're recording this on December eighteenth. Yesterday on December seventeenth, Nasuno Sakana, the mystery fish, had a retirement ceremony at the Chiba Marines Stadium, where all five of the evolved forms of the mystery fish all appeared at once on the field, and then finally the the fish bid sayonara to the crowd after giving a retirement speech walked through the outfield wall in a huge puff of smoke and then in an animated video took the form of an actual fish that was swimming away in the ocean and then left with this quote david there are still so many unsolved mysteries in the sea see you again at somewhere underwater goodbye That does it for our follow-up. And now to Frank Lucchese and 564. Why
1: did we choose Frank today? Matt, over the summer, we had a guest on, Dr. Clayton Truder, to talk about Tom Glavin. And while I was looking through Clayton's works, I found an article that he wrote about Frank Lucchese. And I sent him a note and said, you know Frank Lucchese's in the set, so you should probably come back and, and talk about him. This is a busy time of year with the holidays coming up. And I said, let's talk about somebody who, you know, m- maybe doesn't have a, a huge amount of of information about him, not realizing Frank Lucchese had, I don't know, 50 years of baseball history. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And I thought this will be an easy one, but I thought it would be a great time to bring Clayton back to the show. Welcome back, Clayton. And do you teach a course on Frank Lucchese history?
2: I I wish I did. He certainly merits it. I mean, he's one of the outstanding figures in baseball history in the sense of really touching so many different aspects of the game over the course of its transition in the second half of the 20th century. Thanks, Matt and David, for having me back. But I I hope to be able to offer it in some uh, subsequent semester. Well, we are
0: thrilled to have you back to talk about this card and uh, this important figure from baseball.
1: There's a lot of great articles on Frank Lucchese, including a Sabre bio by David Skelton, an obituary on RIP baseball by Sam Gazejack, and also the article I just referenced by Clayton. And uh, Clayton, again, great reason to bring you back on the podcast. You're also doing the podcast circuit in advance of the release of Loserville, which comes out next February? Yes, it comes on February 1st, 2022
2: from the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, Loserville, how professional sports remade Atlanta and how Atlanta remade professional sports. It's available for pre-order on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and Bookshop and all the typical online locations. And it is, in essence, an origin story for the modern sporting business. It's about Atlanta's pursuit of pro sports in the 1960s, the arrival of those teams in town in the 60s and 70s, and the often lukewarm response the teams received in uh, subsequent years. Many other cities followed Atlanta's pursuit of pro sports, taking a very corporatized model in terms of trying to lure teams from other cities or trying to lure expansion franchises, and also by building publicly financed stadiums for them. So no matter where you live in the country, you will see a lot of your own city's story in the story of Loserville and can relate to a lot of the ups and downs that have existed in Atlanta
1: pro sports in the last few decades. The book isn't out yet, so you can't buy it for somebody for Christmas, but once you get all those Amazon and bookshop and local bookstore gift cards, you can use those to pre-order uh, Loserville on any of those those great websites.
2: I think it's a fantastic idea.
1: Uh, and I'm, I'm excited to receive mine in February when it comes out. I've already done my pre-order. We also have some other follow-up and I roped Clayton into watching a movie. This was a suggestion from Tim Briggs That there is a movie that is out on HBO Max that includes a reference to baseball cards generally, but also specifically shows some 1988 Topps baseball cards, and they play an important role in the movie. That movie is called 8-Bit Christmas, and it is available on HBO Max. I watched this movie twice. The first time I watched it, I was holding a baby, and I was watching it on my phone, and it was like 7 in the morning. And Matt, I I think I told you I was like, I don't I didn't think this was a very good movie.
0: <laughs> I remember that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so I had a lot of notes. But then I talked to my wife and I said, "Yeah, I watched this movie like it seems like something that I would really like. It's it's based it's got a lot of Chicago things. It's based in the suburbs of Chicago. There's baseball cards, it's about a Nintendo." And she's like, "Well, I kind of want to watch that movie." And so we watched it together and I made Manhattan's. Ah, okay. And I enjoyed the movie so much more when the baby was sleeping and I was drinking. <laughs> All of a sudden it was Citizen Kane. Yes. <laughs> so as I said, this movie ticks a lot of boxes for me. There's a lot of Chicago things. If you miss the the old layout of a Jewel Osco, mm. this, this movie's gonna gonna be great for you. If the guy who wrote the movie, um is from the Chicago suburbs. He's from Batavia, a big deal in the Chicago suburbs. The school that they go to in Batavia is called Mary Todd Lincoln School. Mary Todd Lincoln, I have to shout out my wife for catching this reference. Mary Todd Lincoln was once put into a a mental institution in Batavia, Illinois after the death of her husband. So a lot of really great and very local references. Steve Zahn is in the movie, so we know that it's good. What this movie is actually about is a child's quest to get a Nintendo Entertainment System in a year in the late 80s, possibly 88 or 89. And the kid tries all of these different schemes to get his own Nintendo. One of the schemes, and what is relevant to our podcast here, is one of his friends, a young lady, collects baseball cards and they find a very popular to this podcast error card mm. with Mr. Billy Ripkin, who just celebrated mm. a birthday the other day and they decide that they're going to sell all their cards and they're going to buy in NES. So I won't, won't spoil too much. I, I I enjoyed 8-Bit Christmas. I thought it was kind of a
2: fun look back. I mean, it had aspirations to be a new version of The Christmas Story or Christmas Vacation or one of those kind of films. Storyline, it's very much like The Christmas Story. Setting-wise, it's very much like Christmas Vacation. It looks like it could have been set in the same suburb, basically. I, I think there's some era-specific things they got totally right. Bullies all looked like roadies for Iron Maiden in that time period. Also, dads in the 80s did all love Steely Dan. Yes, yes, True. they certainly did. They, they still do. There was, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> when I was like six years old, I remember, um, I was with my parents and we were for some reason parked outside a high school in a nearby town and the school was letting up for the day, and there was just a brawl that, that, that broke out among about four kids, and a kid who looked exactly like the bully in that thing got thrown on the hood of our car, and a guy was just punching him bloody on the hood of our car. <laughs> so I was like, I know that guy. H- having the one kid in the neighborhood who had the Nintendo that everybody else wanted to be friends with, Boy, I could totally relate to that, too. I mean, I, I, I didn't get a Nintendo until Christmas 91, actually. And for me, then it was all about Tecmo Super Bowl and RBI baseball and stuff. But the idea that, the, that you became a member of the nobility by having the one Nintendo in the neighborhood certainly rang true to me. Hmm. I was
0: one of the first in my neighborhood to get Legend of Zelda when it came out. I'm a few years older than you guys. And so I, I had Nintendo earlier. And the first Legend of Zelda was a Golden Cartridge. And that just, you know, and it, in today's dollars, probably cost $200, but it was worth it. So it sounds like a well-reviewed movie. Thank you both for, for watching that. We'd love suggestions from listeners if there are other movies that you think would fit into the 1988 tops Movie Club. And, you know, maybe, David, we should start a review site
1: on a letterbox. you know, for all of the different <laughs> movies. All of the important movies. We yeah, we could, we could review that one episode of Magnum P.I. <laughs> Whitaker was yeah. in. Yeah, this movie had uh, elements of Christmas Story, Goonies, Sandlot. It isn't necessarily as good as any of those, but that's a pretty high bar. I would say it's a pretty good movie, worth a watch, especially if you have HBO Max and a couple hours of free time. And I think kids would like it as well.
2: I think anybody who likes this podcast is going to basically like this movie, even if they pick some things out about it they don't like. I thought Neil Patrick Harris was really good as the lead in it and as a storyteller. I thought he was very believable. His relationship with his kid was good. I thought that almost had like a Prince's Bride feel to it a little bit too. Yeah, I I, I thought it was a a fun movie.
0: Thank you both for that. Now let's go to the card and going to the front of 564 and Frank Lucchese. Frank Lucchese is just got a very nice warm smile looking at the camera he is wearing a it seems like just a very big Cubs hat (laughs) with his his gray hair peeking out of the sides on the bottom and the nice pinstripe shirt but overall I would say very good looking card who does Frank remind you of in this picture guys
1: I think he looks
2: like Peter Falk. I mean, particularly speaking of The Princess Bride, he looks like when Columbo is reading to Fred Savage in that movie, <laughs> you know, this, this fantastical story. I mean, from everything I learned about my my piece about Frank Lucchese was, was about his life and retirement in uh, Tarrant County, Texas, just outside of Dallas. And the look you see on Frank's face is what I heard from everybody I spoke with. A very warm, friendly guy. He was your best friend the minute he met you. He was an incredibly generous and charitable guy. And I think this picture evokes that sense quite well
1: a little bit of dennis farina maybe a lot of eyebrows yeah there's a lot of eyebrow going on here <laughs> he, he definitely you could
0: tell that he's
1: he's seen a lot in his days uh, from this photo and at this point he 61 he had been coaching baseball for 38 years at this point let's look at the back of the card 564 and this
0: is as with all the managers it is the team checklist So we have Frank Lucchese's stats on the left-hand side. 5'8", 180, batted right, threw right. Born April 24th, 1926, San Francisco, California, with a home in Arlington, Texas.
2: Interestingly, I saw many locations where he's listed as being born in 27.
1: So that's interesting about the 26. Yeah, I was going to suggest that I thought he was born in 27 as well. So, you know, this is an uncorrected error. This is a valuable <laughs> card. I do love that it has, you know, what hand the manager throws in bats with, but then puts it in the past tense. Their commitment to, to accuracy, they're like, he is not going up to bat. Five foot eight, Frank Lucchese, 61 going on, 80 year old Frank Lucchese is not getting into the batter's box against Nolan Ryan. Frank grew up in the North Beach neighborhood of San Francisco. His father, Luigi, was an immigrant from Italy, and he died shortly after Frank's birth. And I have it listed as 1927, not 1926 as it is on the card. And this left Frank's mother to raise Frank and two brothers alone. And Frank would wake up early and work in the produce market before school. So he would get up at five in the morning and go to work. Kind of a a rough life for a a young man in, in San Francisco. He went to Galileo High School. Their motto, and Matt, this is in Italian, so I, I'm going to leave the pronunciation to you. Eppure si muove. And yet it moves. A quote from Galileo that perhaps apocryphally, as he was being told not to spread his teachings about the movement of the earth, as he walked out of the room, he muttered under his breath, and yet it moves. Famous. Alumnus of Galileo High School include noted mobster Raymond Chow, better known as Shrimp Boy. Shrimp Boy, who was a student at Galileo but dropped out prior to graduation. Shrimp Boy is currently serving a life sentence for murder, conspiracy, racketeering, robbery, and other charges. He was involved with some organized crime that actually also led to the downfall of a state senator in California. He was kind of big in the political scene in San Francisco and involved in a lot of different areas of, of crime. This high school has a, a decent baseball history here. Not exclusively Yankees, but there are a bunch of them. Tony Lazare the DiMaggio brothers who also dropped out, Joe DiMaggio dropped out of high school prior to graduation to go become a professional baseball player, as well as Bobby Brown, not my prerogatives, Bobby Brown, the one who won multiple World Series with the Yankees, went on to be president of the American League and also a cardiologist. This Bobby Brown was a teammate of Lucchese at Galileo High School. It's not often that we get this many high profile alumni. The school is now more well known for football. And that's thanks to an alumnus who once had the football field named in his honor, and that's O.J. Simpson. The field was renamed. Also friend and driver of the juice, Al Cowlings graduated in 1965 from Galileo High School. I didn't
2: realize those guys, I mean, I knew they played on the Bills together. I had no idea they went all the way. Wow. that is. Yeah, I, Somebody should I write a to, book about the two of them. I I,
1: I had to double check that to make sure that, and found that they, I believe, graduated in the same year. So after high school, Frank was in the army. He was honorably discharged in 1945 and started a baseball career. While his schoolmates found early success in athletics, it was a little bit more difficult for Frank. As we see on the back of the card, Frank was described as 5'8 and on the chunky side. He had only modest skills, propelling himself mostly on speed and compulsion. Frank was an outfielder, sometimes played second base. Not a sparkling player, but had a pretty uh, long career as a minor leaguer. He started in the Pacific Coast League with Portland, played in the Yankees system on the West Coast in Victoria, British Columbia, Ventura, California, Salem, Bisbee, Arizona, and Twin Falls. He was playing at the B and C level, which was the equivalent of AA and A. As a player, he often hit in the 250-260 range Stealing 15-ish bases a season, so had a little bit of speed and a decent bat. That said, the Yankees knew that Frank was not really a prospect. Joe Devine once told him the closest he'd ever get to Yankee Stadium as a player was to see it on a postcard. But Devine told him, I think you have the stuff to be a manager. And he was right. Frank ended up
0: taking up that role in 1951. He was given the opportunity to be a player manager at Medford in the D level, which is what we would call rookie league at this point. And Frank was only 25, not much older than the players. And his first season, they went 47 and 67. And Frank hit 277 as the team's shortstop. And the next season took him to Thomasville in the Georgia, Florida league, where he again hit 307. So, it's amazing that when he becomes a manager, he learns how to hit. And then moves to the Cotton States League and the Pine Bluffs judges.
2: Yeah, and and very quickly he developed a reputation as an excellent teacher of the game. Many of his later players, whether it was Fergie Jenkins or Larry Boa or Denny Doyle, credited him with playing a significant role in shaping their perceptions of the game. That Frank from very early on understood the psychology of baseball and was able to impart that mentality well to several generations of players at different levels. One thing I've read about him from articles back in the 50s is oftentimes when he was managing players who were older than him, they were still very impressed by his baseball knowledge and felt like they learned things. Whether or not the teams ended up having winning records, he seemed like he was doing the the job of, of helping to develop talent and cultivating their knowledge of being a professional. And Frank, Frank, throughout his career, was certainly a, a, a guy who stood up for his players and also was a guy who imparted a sense of professionalism to the game. So,
0: during those early years, he was doing it from the bench but also on the field. But an event in 1954 ended that player manager portion of his career. And that was a pretty traumatic event playing
1: defense. Frank was on the field and he was hit in the head by a hard line drive. And this. Blow to his head caused a blood clot that would require brain surgery. Doctors told him not to play anymore, and he did suffer some side effects, but he continued to play for, you know, a couple more seasons.
0: <laughs> oh, you know, doctor's orders, brain damage, who, who knows?
1: Frank's got a team to field. He's got to put his best <laughs> guys out on the
0: field, and one of them is him. So 1956, he's managing in Salt Lake City in the Philly system... Moves up to the B-level with the high-point Thomasville High Toms. I mostly 195- left that in there
1: just because of that ridiculous name.
0: The high-point Thomasville High Toms in 1957. And here's the very end, of, finally, of the of his playing career. For a 13-year playing career, Lucchese had 1,123 hits for a two seventy seven average. Ain't too bad. One of the Phillies' top minor league coaches. and And thus begins his his full-time managerial career.
1: And he would stay with the Phillies at all levels of their minor league system through 1972. Over that span of 13 seasons, he won six minor league pennants, five manager of the year titles. He managed at Williamsport, Chattanooga, Arkansas, San Diego, Redding, and Eugene, Oregon. He helped develop prospects, as Clayton said, like Dick Allen, Larry Boa, and Fergie Jenkins. And an interesting note about his relationship with Dick Allen. He coached Dick Allen at Williamsport and then at Arkansas. And the Phillies were the last National League team to have a black player. They did not have a black player until 1957. 21-year-old Dick Allen was about to be sent to Arkansas to play in AAA, and he did not want to go to the South. He'd hoped to be on the big league roster the previous season, he played really well in Williamsport, where Frank was his manager. Allen was about to break the color line in Arkansas. And according to Allen, the Phillies didn't really talk to him about how difficult this was going to be. And they didn't really give him the, the sit down or the man to man talk of, by the way, you're about to go into the belly of the beast and desegregate baseball in Arkansas. And he he admitted he wasn't really ready. Allen was faced with kind of extreme obstacles. In the first game, segregationist governor Orville Faubus, who had blocked Little Rock High School from the Little Rock Nine entering, threw out the first pitch. And Allen makes his debut that day. People in the crowd had signs telling him in no uncertain terms to leave. He went out to his car and found a note on the windshield of his car, telling him to go home. He was forced to live in segregated housing. He faced death threats. And he would later say that he felt Lucchese maybe didn't understand him and didn't give him enough support in 1963 when he faced that racial abuse in Little Rock. Lucchese, for his part, said, a player can't be mistreated when he's voted most popular on the team and is given a new suit. And that response kind of sweeps aside some legitimate problems that were faced and shows Lucchese maybe didn't quite understand and wasn't also ready to be the manager who was desegregating the South in the Philly system. And he wasn't going to solve segregation, but this maybe wasn't handled great by the Phillies and Lucchese might just not have been ready to to handle that situation. Allen spent only one year in Arkansas before getting promoted to Philly and winning the rookie of the year.
2: Well, I, I would I would say I think Len Lucchese is in a very difficult position here, trying to trying to manage a team, trying to continue his own career, trying to deal with this very volatile situation in a massive resistance Arkansas in this time period, probably the most volatile time in a hundred years in the South. I could see that comment certainly being seen as being being insensitive, but at the same time he's. He's primarily the manager of the team. He's in many ways a fish out of water himself as an Italian-American uh, Catholic in, in, in the white Protestant South in Arkansas.
1: So, so I, I think he's, he's, in a, he's in a tough spot there, certainly. It does seem like Lucchese was trying to manage Allen as a baseball player and not looking at the bigger, the bigger picture. And, and we'll get back to their relationship a little bit later when Lucchese is promoted. I think Major League Baseball bears some of the responsibility on this. They let teams put AAA teams in places where there were governments who were actively segregating. And Major League Baseball said, like, oh, no, 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 this is going to be fine. Your players are going to be fine. When, like, then they had to go to segregated housing. The Cleveland owner tried to stop it and tried to say, like, we're not going to. And Ford Frick basically, like, pushed them aside. It's not great.
0: So he was in Arkansas from 63 to 65, then San Diego and Reading up through 1968.
1: The Phillies fired their manager, Gene Mock, in 1968 after he had a falling out with, with Dick Allen. At this point, Lucchese was pretty high up in the Phillies organization in the minors, and it was thought maybe he could come in and manage the team. But he had had a difficult stretch from 1965 to 1968, finishing under five hundred in two of those three seasons. So he was passed over by the big league club. That said, Lucchese had developed quite a reputation as a minor league manager. Uh, He was dynamic, colorful and fiery. Euphemisms for something. Yes. And we have a a few examples here. Uh, In 1959 on Frank Lucchese night, he was ejected on his own. (laughs) on his own night. Uh, Another ejection later in his career led Frank to refuse to leave the field. He sat on home plate and made sandcastles and only left the field when escorted off the field. And also during that 1963 season that we just referenced in Arkansas, there was an incident where Frank was ejected from the first game of a doubleheader. He leaves the field. He climbs a light tower to watch the game. The umpire sees him and screams at him to get down. At which point Frank realizes that he's afraid of heights, and is too scared to move. And that incident made national news. Got him a call from his mom telling him to stay down from light towers.
2: Yeah, it was in Syracuse, New York, I believe, is where that uh, happened against the
1: Syracuse uh, Chiefs. That light tower incident was the first game of a doubleheader. Frank comes back on the field for the second game. The opposing manager was not into Frank's antics and had played the end of the first game under protest. So before the second game starts, Frank says to him, are you gonna play this game under protest too? At which point the opposing manager made a move toward Frank and Frank took a swing at him. So the umpire threw Frank out of the second game before it even started. Thrown out of two games of a doubleheader is impressive. This all leads up to Frank's
0: finally arriving in the major leagues after the 1969 season And Dick Allen's name comes back again, because as Dick Allen is
1: leaving the team, Lucchese is is joining it. Dick Allen was traded to the Cardinals that offseason. In a 1971 interview, Allen said of this trade, they take a guy with more talent than anyone else in the club, and they ship him out instead of a manager with no major league experience, a manager who hasn't proven himself. Which led to a response from Lucchese. If he ever pops off again, I'm going to rip him in print. He better keep his mouth shut because there's more I can say about Richie Allen than he can say about Frank Lucchese. So there's this kind of public spat and war of words, but Allen would also later say that Lucchese was a quote, wonderful manager, and he learned a lot from Frank. So I think part of this is that both of these guys talked a lot, are well quoted in the press, and I think that they later in their in their lives were on much better terms than they were in the 60s and 70s.
2: Well that's that, that's my impression certainly and when, and when lucchese is the manager of the Rangers he's like let's sign Dick Allen he's out there he's available sings his praises certainly so by that point it's it appears that any rift between them had been had been really a, a smoothed over. I think it's two strong personalities certainly and Dick Allen I think certainly belongs in the Hall of Fame but Part of his legacy is certainly he had a contentious relationship with many managers and many of his teammates. I mean that's 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 certainly part of the Dick Allen story.
0: Opening day of nineteen seventy.
2: Philadelphia's
0: large Italian American population, very excited to have an Italian manager and Frank Lucchese. He gets a very warm reception. He's only forty four years old at this point, very young and spry forty-four. That's just an age that you can tell. It's just you know, lots of energy and wisdom, but
1: things turn sour pretty quickly. Yeah, Frank said he felt like an underdog, and the team started 10-10, and 10, but they soon fell off, and by the 4th of July, they're 10 games under five hundred. Fans in Philadelphia are known for their patience, kindness toward players and managers. Uh, they started booing Frank. This team was focused around speed and pitching, and the pitching was around National League average, but offensively they were terrible. They scored 594 runs, which was worst in the National League. And the second worst was 681 runs, so almost 90 runs fewer than the, the next worst team. So they were really anemic offensively. Maybe could have used Dick Allen on that team. They won 73 games, finished fifth in the National League East. Not great, but a 10-win improvement over 1969. 1971,
0: even worse, only 67 games that they won. This was the first of three straight last place finishes. But in 1972, they did have
1: one highlight, which was Steve Carlton. Yeah, he won 27 games in the National League Cy Young. Unfortunately, the other pitchers only got 32 wins. This is one of the most remarkable seasons in pitching history, I think. They were in in first place through 20 games, at 13-7, and seven, so the Frank Lucchese magic is there, and it didn't last. They They had some really bad runs, including losing 19 of 20 games from May to June, and that put them in last place in the National League East. Frank only lasted 76 games, and the team won 26 of those.
0: Yeah, so general manager Paul Owens replaces Frank with general manager Paul Owens. This is <laughs> This is from
1: the Dick Cheney School in Executive Recruiting. Yes. Lucchese, for his part, had been with the Phillies organization for so long, and he was hurt. And he said, I don't have red blood in my veins. I have Phillies blood. He was good for a quote. That's gross. Frank was still popular in Philadelphia and was offered a job with the mayor's office. Instead, he stayed with the Phillies as an instructor. Probably an awkward situation as... He's working under the general manager who just fired him, and he leaves at the end of the season.
2: I would say moving forward, though, Danny Ozark's teams by the mid-'70s are very strong, and and many of those guys who end up being the stand-up players in those teams are guys who are groomed by Lucchese both in the minor leagues and the major leagues. So I think some of the credit for that certainly belongs for him, that he builds much of the architecture for what becomes a National League East dynasty in that Phillies franchise. He ends up taking a job with the Oklahoma 89ers, And after one season
0: coaching there, he ends up being brought in by Billy Martin as a third base coach for the
1: Rangers. The nice bonus of being Billy Martin's assistant is that there's always a chance that you might become the manager at a moment's notice. (laughs) Billy was ejected five times in 1974, four times in 1975, and he was fired in July of 1975 with the team seven games under 500. Lucchese, who probably got a few games of experience in those ejections, was promoted initially as an interim manager. The team closes out the season pretty good, 35 and 32 under Frank. And then in 1976, the Rangers finished 10 games under 500, but Frank is given a contract extension. And while we talked about the volatility of Billy Martin, Frank was ejected eight times in 1976. So he himself gave his uh, his assistants some much needed experience yeah it sounds like he learned from the best
2: well, oh I, I he's 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 doing it even before martin is at the minor league level i mean i i think lucchese certainly from the people i spoke with sports writers some of the people who played for him they always talk about how he had his players back on and off the field and i think this in many ways exemplifies it both in Philly and also in Texas, he certainly wins over the fan bases as being being a man of the people. In Philadelphia, certainly part of it is as being being also Italian-American in a city with a large Italian-American population. He goes to Arlington, Texas, has no real cultural connection there, but he wins people over very quickly. I mean, part of it is he's, when he gets outside the lines, he's a very warm personality. I, I spoke with his daughter who talked about after games him spending a lot of time just talking to kids and signing every autograph until everybody was... Was pleased, and he very quickly developed a strong, almost like rat's roost relationship with the fan base there.
0: So, by those accounts, it really did seem like Lucchese was connecting well with the community in Texas when he had moved to Arlington. But we get to 1977, and one of the one of the standout incidents in Lucchese's career, and this is a bit difficult, but it happened, and it's something that we should talk about. David, maybe you want to tell us about the incident with Lenny Randall, and we can
1: then dig into what happened and how the team responded. Sure. Lenny Randall, who was once in a funk band with Thad Bosley, was the starting second baseman for the Rangers in 74 through 76. The first two seasons, he was pretty good. 76, he slumps pretty badly and hits only 224. The Rangers had a top prospect, Bump Wills, son of Maury Wills, and Wills had a great season at AAA in 1976. So Lucchese starts it in a lot of spring training games. Randall didn't take kindly to this competition, and it seemed like the writing was on the wall that Bump was going to get bumped into the starting position. And Lucchese announces that Wills is going to be starting going into 1977. So Lenny Randall starts packing his things, and he's going to leave camp. Gaylord Perry, Mike Hargrove convince him that he should stick around, and Randall agrees to stick around. Lucchese says publicly, I wish they'd have let him go. If he thinks I'm going to beg him to stay on this team, he's wrong. I'm sick of punks making $80,000 a year, moaning and groaning about their situation. Lucchese's use of the word punks here was perhaps had some a more negative connotation than what Frank anticipated, and he later told coaches privately that he regretted using that term. Randall was upset, but also joked around with his teammates about being a punk, and about the incident. But a few days later, during warm-ups, he confronts Lucchese on the field. And during what appeared to be a calm conversation, out of nowhere, Randall punched Frank in the face, knocking him down and punches him a couple more times before a teammate pulls him away. Frank had some pretty serious injuries, a fractured cheekbone, a concussion, broken ribs, and an injured back. Randall immediately suspended 30 games, fined $10,000, He ends up traded to the Mets after that suspension was up and having a pretty good season with the Mets. Frank came back to coach eight days later, which is pretty impressive considering that litany of of injuries. The Rangers started the season 500, 31 and 31 in June, and Rangers management fired Lucchese due to disagreements purportedly with GM Eddie Robinson. The team was only four games out of first place at the time, Frank blamed that Randall incident for the firing. That said, the Rangers went through four managers this season, so it's unlikely that that individual incident was to blame. But Frank actually sued Lenny Randall and and continued to blame him for, for losing his job. Randall, for his part, tried multiple times to apologize for the incident. And interestingly, Billy Martin testified on behalf of Randall and helped him pay the fine. Martin had felt that Lucchese was responsible for his own termination, So it really gets into this very messy situation. Frank ends up both attacked and then fired. And then it it turns into a huge uh, legal mess. They settled out of court.
2: Yeah, I can't speak to the interpersonal aspects of it based on my research. That really wasn't what I focused on for my thing. It seems like a textbook assault to me based on based on what happened, and anything beyond that, it's it's tough to say what happened behind the scenes. In terms of Eddie Robinson, I know that he and Lucchese were friends for many years. I spoke with Eddie Robinson, who was for a, a time the oldest living major leaguer and had been the general manager, and they were certainly friends in later years, and he had nothing but glowing things to say about Frank Lucchese, describing him as a family man and a true professional. So I, I gather in the long run, they certainly had had an excellent rapport and, and a friendship. Um, Arlington, Texas, and the environs of Dallas had many former major leaguers in it, and both Eddie Robinson and Frank Lucchese were very involved in later years with these baseball alumni-type gatherings.
1: Eddie Robinson, who recently passed away, had a, an excellent podcast called The Golden Days of Baseball, and uh, RIP Eddie Robinson. He was um, a great storyteller and had a... a really great memory of of a lot of this baseball history because he lived it
2: Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to him i just called him on the phone one day told him who i was and we chatted for 45 minutes just just a consummate gentleman and a, and a great guy it was uh, a real pleasure to be able to talk with him before he uh before he passed away
0: so that brings us pretty much all the way up to this card frank was with the rangers in a scouting role for a little while then managed for cleveland scouted for the Dodgers in 1985, and then moves to the Cubs in 1986 and 87. The Cubs had fired their manager, Gene Michael, in September of 1987. Frank is asked by the GM to come in for 25 games of that season. And that's why we have this card, Frank, as the interim manager. And the Cubs went 8-17 and
1: in those 25 games. And he was ejected twice. (laughs) It's a pretty good rate. When I initially saw this, if you had asked me who the Cubs manager was in the 1988 top set, I would have said Don Zimmer, because Don Zimmer comes in early in 1988. So he is included in the Tops traded set. So listeners, we will talk about Don Zimmer at some point. But instead, it's Frank Lucchese, 8 and 17. I think everybody knew it was an interim deal, but the Topps Corporation had to put a manager card out. So Frank gets a card, and this is his last card. His first card was, I think, in the 1970 top set. But you just have this, like, odd snapshot of time with Frank Lucchese in a Cubs uniform. He would go on after the season to coach the Reds AAA club in Nashville in 88 and 89. And then he retired to Texas. I think it's nice he finished his career
2: again minor, managing in the minor leagues with the Nashville Sounds in 88 and 89. It really puts a nice punctuation mark on it. He's again a teacher. He's he's coaching up guys like Barry Larkin who go on and have an excellent career. Buster Olney actually in his first job covered that 89 Nashville Sounds team, so they had, had, had a rapport as well. So it, it, it's nice he was able to in some ways finish where he started and he had a, a very unique and long baseball
1: career that touched many different aspects of the history of the game. In his seven seasons as an MLB manager, Lucchese had a 316 and 399 record. So a losing record for his major league career his minor league record was much better. 1,678 wins versus 1,519 losses. And as we said previously, he had a bunch of minor league championships to his name and Minor League Manager of the Year awards. In 1988, Lucchese is inducted into the Texas Baseball Hall of Fame and he spent his retirement in Tarrant County, Texas, which brings us to Clayton's article and, and a lot of the conversations that Clayton had about his life in in tarrant county
2: frank lucchese a guy who traveled around for many decades he's uh italian guy from san francisco chooses to settle in Colleyville which is a town fairly a newly incorporated town in the 70s in tarrant county texas in the south lake region uh, of the area uh, i do a lot of freelance articles on the side typically related to sports history and when frank died i, I came across an obituary of his and it mentioned that where he was living And it was curious to me that he chose to settle there. And as I was coming up with ideas for articles, I pitched to a publication called South Lake Style, which is a regional promotional and arts and cultural magazine, an idea about uh, an article about what his life was like choosing to settle in Tarrant County, coming from somewhere very different. And it it was a fantastic experience writing and researching the article, getting to talk to people about what... Frank's life was like in his decades uh, until his death in 2019, living in this community, raising his family, um, developing friends in the area, maintaining strong connections with the Rangers organization, strong connections with the Sabre chapter there. I spoke with a couple of people in the local uh, chapter there and Frank was a a frequent guest at meetings. They were so excited to have a former major league manager there at their meetings regularly and was a friend to everyone it seemed and really helped make this place his his long-term home and his family still lives in the region and they were very helpful for this piece talking about frank and also providing images for use in the article so it, it was a great human interest story to write and frank developed a, a a unique life in his later years built around his experience in texas where he was already well known and had a strong relationship with the fan base and even if people didn't know him from his baseball time he was he was a very easygoing and friendly guy to deal with off, off the ball field
1: something that struck me from your article there he became involved in the saber chapter because he just started showing up to meetings to talk about baseball and then they realized oh my gosh this is frank lucchese this is a guy with 40 plus years of baseball experience like let's bring him up to talk but he just was a retired guy who loved to talk about baseball and and loved baseball for his his whole life you mentioned his family he met his wife, Kathy, in Pine Bluff in 1954. They were together for the next 65 years. She moved with Frank from t- minor league town to minor league town. He wasn't making a lot of money. I read somewhere that his his uh, off-season jobs, he was a bartender. Worked at UPS, I believe, for a while. <laughs> I mean, he, yeah. he. And it's not a luxurious lifestyle, but they also had three kids, Karen, Fran, and Brian, who all lived within a few blocks of each other in Texas. And as you said, in retirement, he's really active in the Dallas area. He would show up at alumni events and was really active in charities.
2: Yes, he was in 1992, the Fort Worth Telegram named him Man of the Year for his charitable exercises. I spoke with several people who described he would see about a child in the newspaper who had some kind of problem come up, and Frank would just go and, and you know bring like a backpack full of school supplies or, or toys to the child and make him laugh, and he was just... I mean, he, he was just looking for opportunities to, to help people out. That was, that was certainly his personality.
0: So Frank, having passed in, in 2019, was a fighter to the end. He was told in 2015 that he only had a few months to live after being diagnosed with Alzheimer's and lived another four years and ended up dying at age 92.
1: But what a character and what an amazing career. And sadly, he's best remembered for that incident with Lenny Randall. But Frank had a huge influence on a lot of young players in the Phillies system. And even though he may have had a contentious relationship with Dick Allen, the fact that Dick Allen said he was a wonderful manager and he learned so much from him, even though they kind of butted heads, it seemed like Frank really did make a a good connection Hopefully when Dick Allen eventually
2: gets in the Hall of Fame, which he certainly deserves, he's one of the great players of his generation, his plaque as well as Ferguson Jenkins' plaque will in and of themselves be a legacy to the efforts of Frank Lucchese as a manager in baseball, as well as Gaylord Perry, who was also a guy who played for him and had a solid
1: relationship with him as well. I think this is one of those, the the many reasons why we like to do this podcast is that you see this picture of a guy who coached 25 games for the Cubs, and then we go back to, 1945. And it's, you know, it's really one of the fun stories that, that we've come across here. Clayton, thank you for
0: joining us today. We'll have a link in the show notes uh, for pre-orders for Loserville and best of luck as that comes out in the new year. David, thank you for the story and thank you to you at home. If you've ever beaten Mike Tyson's punch out by winning 14 games in a row, we'd like to hear from you on Twitter. We're tops 1988. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.